what is our usual reaction when somebody tells us they've seen demon possessions or other things like that? Ghost sightings, anything otherworldly, what's our reaction? Most of the time, we'll mock them, or if it's a podcast like this, you would click away and disbelieve what they said. Well, I can't say that I've seen anything like that. No demons, ghosts, vampires, werewolves, or anything else. Not in real life, anyways. You can see anything pretty much on a movie, or at your nearest red box. But most times, things aren't that close in real life. One of the most famous couples to ever associate themselves with the supernatural events are Ed and Lorraine Warren. From 1952 all the way into the 90s, when they were involved with the werewolf at a white lady in Union Cemetery in Connecticut. The Warrens have had their fair share of doubters, of course, with numerous stories that claim to debunk the psychic and spiritual investigations of the couple. And while most of those critics are met with silence from the Warrens, a few have managed to capture the public's attention and write their own names and history down beside that couple. But who doesn't have their doubters, their skeptics, and their losses? What remains clear, even all these years later, after all the doubters and the stories, is that something significant and sinister happened in New England. The year was 1976, barely four decades ago. The house was at 112 Ocean Avenue, and the city was Amitsville. Maybe you've seen the movies, maybe even all of them. There are tons of them. The most popular ones from 1979 and the remake in 2005 are cultural staples. Everybody and their brother knows the story of Ronald Defoe Jr., the bodies, the inexplicable aspects of the case, and the many theories regarding, well, pretty much everything. There are so many pieces of this case that have been picked apart, almost everyone you talk to will know something or other about it. But while Amitville is one of the most well-known murder cases, it's also one of the most unknown, the most sinister. November 13, 1974. It was a windy day, nearly 20 miles per hour, there was a slight rain, so thin that it was closer to a mist, really. The temperatures were warmer than normal, even for winter. Upwards of 60 degrees, a low of 42. A normal day, a casual one. No record-setting weather, no significant events. The Richard Nixon saga was wrapping up in Washington, and Stephen King was officially, for the first time, a bestseller. Besides that, Amityville, New York, was a quiet neighborhood. It would remain that way throughout the night. Nobody heard the screams, you see, because there were none. 3.15 is the estimated time for the first death. Ronald Defoe Jr. took up a shotgun, probably his father's, and made his way through the multiple floors of the house. Now this isn't your normal child slaughter's family ordeal from one of the horror movies. Defoe Jr. was a grown man, and while one of his siblings was nine, that was the youngest. His family was made up of four other siblings, 
his mother and his father. Seven people in the house total. Six shots, every one of them was found in their beds, a gunshot clearly the cause of death. Defoe Jr. left the house at some point, making his way to a bar over 15 hours after the events. That's where he confessed, and Amityville became a horror. What exactly happened that night? Nobody can say for sure. There are many claims surrounding the first murder. One of those strange claims is that most people say the killings happened very quickly. While the murders took place over a large area, a house that had more than three floors, all of these gunshots were carried out swiftly. Too quick for one person to have done them? Maybe. Some people say that. Could there have been a second killer in the house? Perhaps Defoe Jr. was forced, convinced, or blackmailed into taking the blame, and the other person got off clean. That seems like a bit of a stretch. Second point to consider. While the murders were all quick and virtually silent, after all, nobody had a clue anything happened until Defoe went to the bar and confessed. The various members of the family could have called for help or escaped or put up a fight of some sort. You can't convince me that a gunshot one floor below, or even two floor belows, would not wake up anybody, somebody. There were six shots, five chances for somebody to wake up, and yet nobody did, or at least nobody did anything. They were all found in their beds. Could Defoe have moved them there after killing them elsewhere? Yeah, possibly, but the police are usually pretty good at finding that sort of clues, even in the 70s. And then there's Defoe himself, who is an extremely odd case. He never has stuck to a story about the murders. Instead, he's changed it over the years, as if he himself has no idea what really happened. He can't even decide whether he was married or not at the time, and that's a pretty big deal in your life. His plea for innocence, however, has always been the same, always very disturbing. He claims to have been insane, not in control. That definitely seems to be the case. Whenever he walked into that bar, confessing to the murder, it wasn't exactly a confession like you imagine, or like I made it out to be. In fact, it was closer to a plea for help. You got to help me, he cried out. I think my mother and father are shot. I think, is what he said, as if he wasn't there in the first place. While the word may have been uttered quietly in people's minds, nobody said it out loud. Over a year later, it was the only word and the only explanation. Perhaps he was possessed, and perhaps that possession never left the house. There is a terrible descent into madness that comes through in every good adaption of these events. At the beginning of the story, everything is normal. It's been just over a year since the murders, and people for the most part have moved on. The Lutz family, three children and two parents, move into the home. Jordan and Kathy had just married in 1975, and were looking for a fresh start, as she had brought three children from a previous marriage, and George brought his dog Harry. The house, affectionately named, 
is called High Hopes, after all. A story of a priest who came to bless the house on the quest of George's brother, and came away with blisters on his hands and unpleasant voices in his head, still persists. Many unpleasant experiences awaited the Lutz in their new home, so this priest event was only the beginning. What the Lutz family would experience ranges from subtle to severe, nagging to nefarious. It started with the door locks. These were found open, both on the door handles and on the windows around the house. Sometimes the glass would be shattered or damaged or just cracked. No members of the house would admit to doing it, which seems normal because if a kid breaks a window, who really wants to say they did it and get in trouble? But then, decorations were messed with, such as a crucifix and a china ornament. These were found in places that they weren't supposed to be, such as empty rooms and storage. There were footprints in the snow, windows opening and closing, the sounds of footsteps in empty rooms. All of it was somewhat explainable and not too difficult to ignore. Even when their daughter climbed onto the roof and nearly jumped off, they could blame it on childhood mischief. Maybe the welts on Kathy's chest were a result of an allergy or scratching herself while sleeping. Then George started experiencing things himself. The front door would slam shut, waking him from sleep, but nobody else. Even the dog, who would sleep right in front of the door, didn't hear or feel anything. There was a pig that wandered around the house, and only he and his daughter could see it. Then there was the uncanny likeness to Defoe Jr. from a year before, and the tendency to drink at the same bar. I'm not going to lie, these two guys are eerily similar. It could just be the normal 70s haircut, or maybe it's something else. Go Google it for yourself if you want to. Perhaps strangest of all was the fact that George, every night, would wake up from his sleep and go down to check the boathouse, every night at 3.15. There's even been stories of, from a later year, the director who directed the film The Amethyst Horror would wake at night at 3.15 while in the process of making the movie. Back with the Lutz family, their children slept on their stomachs the same way that the Defoe's were found dead. The house was plagued by flies all times of the year relentlessly. But then the Lutzes moved out, taking all their possessions with them. Only 23 days inside the house was enough to drive them out. And while there are countless fictional sequels, nothing has happened in real life since then. Forty years of silence and high hopes seems to have fallen asleep. There were, of course, countless lawsuits after the release of the book titled The Amethystville Horror. When the movie came out, followed by sequel after sequel after spinoff after sequel, these lawsuits and arguments erupted again. People wanted money from this very profitable fictional series. Whether that was the original family, Defoe Jr.'s lawyer, or the writer of the first book. Many, many people were accused of many, many legal missteps, like misuse of names, not abiding by copyright laws, 
and tons of other legal jargon. The Ammonville House remained quiet through it all, and quiet to this day. It has passed through owners, although nobody ever blamed paranormal activity as their reason for leaving. Ed and Lorraine Warren, one of the reasons the case has become so popular, moved on to their other projects. Ed and Lorraine Warren, one of the reasons that the case has become so popular, eventually moved on to their other projects after doing their best to clear the house of these terrible, mysterious events. Partially because of their involvement, the Amitville Horror has been known as a fraud, a fake, and a money-making lie. And if it was, in fact, a lie, it remains one of the most successful ever. So, the question remains, of course, did it all happen? What is the true story behind the murders and the hauntings? Nobody knows, and perhaps nobody ever will. Certain aspects of the case are no longer believed to be true. Other parts can't be proven false. At the end of the day, proof doesn't mean much. Either you believe or you don't. One of the more disturbing parts of this case, to me at least, is the existence of a certain secret room. George discovered it not long before the family moved out. This was after failed exorcisms, intense research into the house's history, and many strange experiences that still can't be explained. A secret room doesn't seem like much, especially at the end, and yet, well, just listen. The room George found smelled like rotten meat, blood, and animal excrement. It was nothing but a small closet, really, four feet by five. All of the walls were covered in a deep red color that no one could explain. Probably paint. Hopefully paint. Harry, the dog, wouldn't go near the room once it was discovered, and cowered whenever he came too close. It was near the stairs or under it. Nobody knows for certain. That's because this red room, as it came to be known, wasn't on any maps or blueprints of the house. The design didn't match the rest of the home, and the wall paint was completely different. So what was in this red room, you might ask? According to the book, nothing. It was empty. But, you know, there are theories. Perhaps something in that room was the final straw. Perhaps it drove them out of the house for good. You can view the silence of the house since then in one of two ways. Either there never was a possession, which is possible, or maybe there was something in the house, but it left. Which ultimately begs the question, where is it at now? Fear was written and produced by me, David Coomer. The music was found online from a free music site called Incompetech. Pretty good, huh? Who would have thought something free could be so perfect for this episode? The song was even called This House which is pretty appropriately named. If you're wondering about where I got all this information from, you can head over to davidcoomer.com where you'll find more information about the podcast, including where you can find my research and how you can help support me. If you haven't heard, I also write books, which are available on Amazon if you feel the need to actually read something. They're inexpensive, but very thrilling, so enjoy. Please, if you enjoyed this episode, consider leaving a review on iTunes or wherever else you got it. It helps me 
It helps all the other listeners, and maybe we can even get up the charts a bit. If you have any questions, email me at davidcoomer7 at gmail.com. I'd be glad to talk with you, and can't wait to hear. See you then.